Welcome to Real Estate Investing Abundance, the show for busy, fulfilled professionals like you to learn how to develop financial independence built on solid, passive real estate investments. Now, here is your host, Dr. Alan Lomax. Hello, enlightened investors. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Lomax, and it is a pleasure to be with you today as we learn about the economics of mom and pop. Jonathan O'Kane is vice president and head of research at Chandon Economics. At Chandon, he blends data with storytelling, bringing forward unique coverage of all things related to mom and pop rental housing. So, Jonathan, take us into the show by sharing a memorable experience from your formative years that helped you to be who you are today. Absolutely. And first, thank you for having me on the show, Alan. Appreciate this. Regarding your formative experience, I think I'd have to go back to my days at Pace University. Instead of a social life, I decided to join the Fed team. It was a a competitive monetary policy team, which it's kind of similar to Model UN, which some people in their collegiate high school experience may have gone through, but this was kind of more on the economic side. And uh, it really helped me to you know, understand the value of hard work. I think before that point in time, school very much came easy, but kind of put into this experience and having to really understand things, not just at an inch deep level, but really being able to you know, connect the you know, intricacies of the economy from one unrelated topic to another. It was a really unique experience. Definitely check your ego a little bit. You know, I went to Pace University, as I just mentioned, which is you know, not one that you typically think of when you think of the Ivies or kind of in that same breath. But you know, within this small little program, we were beating the Harvards, we were beating the Yales. We had won the national competition a couple of times you know, while I was part of this large team. And uh, I believe that they had won you know, this year as well. You know, shameless little plug back to the Elmar. But just being able to kind of put pieces together on a macro level and being able to kind of have those kind of conversations. I thought that going through that for a couple of years, even if it was kicking my butt in the process, it definitely helped me to kind of you know, exit there and be able to have those conversations uh, thereafter. Well, interesting. Sounds like a great program. What attracted you to that? You know, going in to undergrad, it wasn't the fact that I had, it was an extracurricular that kind of ended up consuming the life. I went in as a business undecided, quickly fell in love with economics, realized, hey, this is the study of everything that I am actually interested in. I just didn't know what to call it. I was reading free economics in you know, 10th and 11th grade back in high school. And then walking into my first Econ 101 class saying, oh my God, I'm, I'm one of the actually people that not only enjoys this, but I can't wait for the next class. It was really kind of a, a natural progression into the monetary policy side. It was you know, almost something that once you fell into the major, and if you were kind of performing at the top of your classes, you were kind of recruited into. So it's in many ways, everyone within the econ department has a hand in it in some respect or another. We kind of always viewed it as uh, we were a little bit of a family and we all have a little bit of a hand to play. You were probably a pretty small family. I think you're probably one in a thousand who goes, I really enjoy economics. Most people hear the term and they run. I'm quite used to that, for sure. <laughs> it is, it's a fascinating topic, but it can be daunting, certainly for, I think, young people in particular. Sure. But tell us, well, I mean, just give us a definition of what you're talking about when you talk about mom and pop rental markets. Well, I think, you know, mom and pop rental park markets is really kind of hitting those, you know, the smaller landlords, the ones that have, you know, say anywhere from one to 50 units under management that it is really kind of perhaps they're not professionally managers where they are, you know, one of these national landlords 
but it's something that is their retirement for their kids. It is something that is, you know, supplementing their otherwise income or they're doing it professionally, but they you know, don't have the same scale as some of those bigger players. So, you know, the types of access to capital, the access to information, the access to you know, tools in the management, we definitely see a divergent set of trends across the board you know, between those two groups. Well, you say that the mom and pop markets have been really much more sensitive to the pandemic than the professional markets. So what do you mean by that? So our company has recently partnered with Rent Ready. I believe you had their CEO on the show as well as Ryan Barone. And you know, their property management software is entirely for those small mom and pop independent landlords. So we have been able to use their data and put together a rent tracking tool that is similar to what the National Multifamily Housing Council is putting together on the professionally managed side. So once we started to actually dig into that data, we were able to make interesting comparisons based on that independent side versus that professionally managed side. What we were noticing is that, sure, we were seeing a little bit of a dip on the professionally managed side. So that was using data from you know, RealPage and, and Yardi and the NMHC data you know, on the scale of two to three percentage points from you know, pre-pandemic to the dog days of the pandemic versus in ours, we were noticing a quite large drop-off, you know, sometimes seeing on-time payment rates as low as you know, 70% on some months in the summer of 2020. So it really kind of spoke to that hey, I think we all really knew it going in that there was you know, the scale of the distress that these mom and pop independent landlords were feeling during 2020 and even into 2021 was really out of concert with a lot of the national data that was being reported. We're seeing some of it in the Census Bureau data that was a little bit more kind of anecdotal, but this kind of helped us to you know, put a data point to you know, what we were really hearing in conversations from the market. Yeah, and yeah, I don't know of too many organizations who really separate that out and look at that mom and pop class of rentals there. So there really is a lack of information there. But you were saying that even though they took a bigger dip, they are recovering pretty much uh, by this time this year. But it has really taken this long for them to make that recovery, whereas the larger and more commercial operations, a lot of them, overall, there really wasn't much of a dip in terms of the uh, collections and rental markets. You're right. And our most recent data point for March 2022, our preliminary data, it was the first time that we reached above that pre-pandemic trend. So as we're looking at it, it was something that was you know, reaffirming for us. That there is, we were very excited to see it just as we want to see the health and recovery of the sector in itself. So to see that was a, a big milestone. We'll be right back after a brief announcement. Are you a busy professional, passionate about the work of your calling, yet realize that even though you love what you are doing, you're exchanging your time for money? You know that if you were to lose the ability to exchange time for money, your financial well-being will be in jeopardy. If you can relate, I have great news. Steve Tucker Capital is an investment company designed for professionals to develop financial independence built on solid, passive real estate investments. Remove the anxiety of an uncertain financial future and go to steetalker.com. Get your free one-page 10-step guide to passive real estate investing. Yeah, it, it is quite a big milestone. Have you been able to analyze the data and really, I mean, come to conclusion as to the cause that the mom and pops took a 
bigger dip than the more commercial properties. And it really comes down to the credit quality of the tenants themselves. You know, who is renting in the professionally managed side? You know, much more of that renter by choice rather than the renter by necessity. You know, within those, you have you know probably renters that were you know less likely to lose their job as a result, ones that were more able to transition into work from home setups. Versus, you know, this kind of also piggybacks off of some of the small the family research that we do with partnered with Harbor Realty Trust. But you know, within these small multifamily rentals, that there is definitely a pretty large difference in the types of tenants that are there. And uh, I believe in our rent-ready sample, the majority of of units, or rather the the modal component, the the, the most, is coming from those that are renting below a thousand dollars. And uh, you know, the distress is really you know concentrated there as well. Is that difference in the tenant makeup? Is that a management issue or is it the facilities issues or the quality of the facilities that different between commercial and mom and pop? I would argue is probably more of a facilities issue. Okay. So it isn't just the size that we're looking at in terms of mom and pop. They're older facilities, I'm guessing. And you tend to see that. It tends to be you know, something that's a little bit further away from a core central business district, you know, something at a lower price point. And you know, there's definitely a degree of collinearity there where a unit costs less and therefore it's going to attract a lower income renter as a result. I think that you know, what tools like Rent Ready have you know, allowed for is you know, the same way that you see a collinearity on the tenant side, you know, perhaps there was a collinearity on the operation side where because of higher price points for professional kind of softwares, including Yardy Matrix and the likes of it, it may have not made sense for that smaller landlord to kind of graduate from using spreadsheets. So using that software, it's really allowed them to kind of you know, become more professional in their operations. And we've seen this both within our lending data, but also kind of confirmed with data reported by uh, the National Apartment Association, which is you know, over the last you know, seven, eight years, as we've really kind of seen this you know, increase in tech adoption from smaller landlords, that their operating expense ratios have come down precipitously. So it's allowing these mom and pops to really be, have a more profitable operation just as a factor of running more efficiently. Have you been able to do comparisons between those who are using the rent ready and comparable landlords that are not? Unfortunately, no, we haven't. It's kind of difficult in the sense of uh, we, we, have, we have a one-stop shop. If we have access to the data, then they're part of the sample. Yeah, I would think data collection would be a problem as well and, uh, and getting equal data from those who don't have that access to that uh, quality of management. We'll throw it on our research list, on, on our little wish list. Yeah, yeah, it would be difficult to do that. So renters, I mean, they talk about a lot. I'm wondering if it's as big a deal as it has been, but there's a lot of talk about demographics have shifted because so many people can live where they want to live now because they're not returning to the offices, they're working remotely. Sure. Are you saying that? And is that making a difference in the mom and pop rental markets? To, to a degree, you know, as a result of the pandemic and, you know, its impact on work from home acceleration, really, you're kind of seeing you know, two broad trends. The first being what was referred to as the donut effect. I can't remember the economist that coined it, but it's effectively in central business districts. You know, now, instead of having to come in five days a week, maybe you have to come in, you know, two, three days a week. And 
how many hours a week that then you have to commit to commuting, maybe then you're willing to live a little bit further away from the office, get a little bit more space at the same price point because, hey, I'm willing to accept a 45-minute hour commute three days a week, and that's equivalent to me 30 minutes, five days a week. So in that sense, we've seen an acceleration towards suburbanization. And at the same time, as the, you know, the need to go into a physical office place is diminished completely, for, especially on the more you know, white collar side of the uh, corporate spectrum, you know, that has more profound implications for divorcing residential space from office space. If I'm able to take my New York income with me to go live down in South Carolina, you know, that is very impactful both to markets here and markets there. And you know, not so much an issue necessarily from the mom and pop, or rather, not unique to mom and pop landlords. But I'd say this more of a regional gentrification story, where a lot of the national conversation has been on you know that renter deciding to move from the high cost California, New York City, Boston to the Sun Belt and achieving a higher degree of affordability. And this has kind of, in a lot of ways, been framed as a you know a positive affordability story. But you know we're skeptical to say that we understand that you know they're coming in you know, and achieving a higher degree of affordability. But cognizant of the fact that you know they may have not been the one that that their New York Boston incomes at earning seventy thousand dollars might be a little bit stretched in somewhere like New York. But they not weren't necessarily in themselves in a crisis. Versus now they're moving into somewhere like a secondary market in the Sun Belt where local rents had been calibrated to local incomes. And now if I am a landlord in these markets, I could be saying, hey, I have you know, 10% of the market is new demand this year, and they all have higher incomes than my existing renter population. I'm going to set my rents based on those incoming incomes rather than the, the previous incomes that have supported these rentals. So we, we've noticed this in a lot of the rent growth figures where we're seeing the highest level of rent growth you know, within those Sunbelt markets where we have positive migration flows. It's, and then within our rent tracking data, the data is mixed. So we don't want to be raising too many red flags because frankly, the data is not strong enough to support it. But we definitely do see to some degree that those Sunbelt metros that are seeing heavy you know, migration inflows, a certain uh, you know, deterioration in their ability to attract, to accept rents on time relative to you know, non-Sunbelt metros. But the reason that we kind of hypothesize there is that, that that same argument, if I'm a landlord in one of these markets, I'm saying I can boost my rents by 17% and I can get a renter in. So I'm incented to do so. And then if my renter is unable to keep up, then I'm likely to see some deterioration there from my existing renter. So it's something that we very much have our eye on. Yeah. Well, there is a trend from what I understand that institutions are going into the single family market, uh, rental, single family rental market. And most of that, from what I understand, is generally new construction for the purpose of renting. So two questions here. What is the impact on mom and pop with institutions entering that market? And the other question is, is the same thing happening in a small multifamily from 10 to 50 multifamily? So let's answer the first question first. The impact of you know, these larger players moving in, I definitely think there's a degree of debate. Hey, like on the one side, is it the case that these larger institutions are eating more of the pie? But then you know, we're definitely 
definitely of the mind that they're also creating a bigger pie. You know, it was the case that the Census Bureau puts together the rental housing finance survey every three years. And if you look at what these these large institutions, what their share of ownership for multifamily had been around 8% of total units. So even though we think of this as a much more institutionalized asset class, still like they're a minority, even if they're getting a majority of column inches and press. We noticed the same thing happening with an SFR. In 2018, they're about 2.5% of ownership. Uh, we're waiting. It's going to be, I believe, the, the spring or the fall of next year that we actually get the 2021 results. But we would expect that to start to rise closer to the multifamily share, but it's not going, it's still going to be a number of years of catching up. When it comes to the impact on those smaller landlords, you can make a case that you have more games in town, that's more competition. But at the same time, over the last number of years, you know, that increased institutionalization has actually been a new strategy for these smaller landlords to play, where it had been just you rent, you collect the income, and that's the end of it, versus now you can almost view yourself as a feeder for larger institutions, you know, trading up to the next larger portfolio. So you know, if you're a small landlord that knows your market well, that delivers quality product and able to you know, operate your units efficiently, you know, there's still a value to being in that market. And I would just argue that you, know, you probably have more options available to you now than less. That's encouraging. Well, what about institutions moving into a small multifamily where you scarcely find institutions involved in that market? Right. I think it's a lot of the same argument. I think that you know the agency has kind of moved into that market a number of years ago and really created a new set of liquidity there. You see you know, increased institutional participation, somewhat on the equity side, but even more so on the debt side. A lot of the research that we've done has been with our Realty Trust, who is a mortgage REIT that was one of the first to really you know, target that small multifamily part of the market. And you know, it's increased appetite across the board, especially with the affordability crisis that we have right now. Based on our tracking and based on, frankly, most tracking, anywhere from 75 to 80% of the affordable housing supply is naturally occurring. So we call it naturally occurring affordable housing, NOAA. And you know, these small multifamily units are even getting down to those two to four family units. You know, those really make up the bulk of you know, what's available to a workforce renter or a low-income renter. Well, Jonathan, you just have a wealth of very, very valuable data. So how can our viewers and listeners take advantage of that and get in touch with you? Sure. So to get in touch with me, it would be OK at chandon.com. That is O-K-A-N-E at chandon.com. As far as you know, using the data itself, our body of research is available at chandon.com. We've recently released that independent landlord rental performance report with Rent Ready. It launched back in December 2020, and we're updating it on a monthly basis. So we usually we cut our data the 15th of the month and look to release it that week after. So we have just released the, the March 22 report, and around April 20th or so, somewhere in that ballpark, we begin to release the uh, the April report that talks through preliminary data as well as the finalized March data. You know, with that, it really kind of gives a different and unique perspective 
on smaller landlords and the health of the housing sector. It's an area that we don't have as much data for, but it makes up the majority of the market. So we're hoping that the usability of this data is really kind of used as a health engage for both users and policy makers alike. And you know, as far as our future ambition with the data, we're looking to start to increase new and interesting statistics to go along with the rent tracking. We're in development of an occupancy series that talks through this, the same you know, mom and pop landlords, rent growth. We're making sure that we're weighting it appropriately to national trends. So that's, we have our data scientist, Dylan Zito, working on that. And eventually we're looking to be able to branch into making this a true data service, where if you go in and say, hey, I am an owner, I kind of fit these qualifications or these specifications, I you know, want to know more about what is possible and what I should be achieving in my rental, you might go in and be able to you know, access some of that data, run a comps report, and we'd be able to run the analytics on our side and give you some of that information saying, Alan, you know, based on the characteristics that you're describing in your property, based on your census block where you are, you know, this is really what you should be able to achieve in those rentals. So that's really kind of you know, our future ambition where we're looking to go from here. Well, that would just be invaluable. Well, that Shandon.com is where you're going to find that. And Shandon is spelled with C-H-A-N-D-A-N. And you can, of course, find that in our notes as well. Well, Jonathan, tell us just a little bit here. We're running out of time, but just real quickly, tell us about the debt market and the fact that interest rates are increasing. And certainly the Fed has told us they're going to continue to increase what impact is that going to have on mom and pop? So uh, the mom and pop would actually would probably be the most sensitive, especially if it's the case that you have you know, floating rate debt. Looking on our side, the amount of you know, debt that's in the entirety of multifamily market in the United States has increased by about 150% since the Great Recession. The amount of units that has increased has been about 19%. So you just have a lot more debt capital chasing you know a disproportionate amount of assets a disproportionately lower amount of assets so if we're running into a case where in interest rates are rising and i'm unable to boost the cash flows within my property quickly enough because say i only own four units my debt costs have risen by 50 60 bips within a couple months you could potentially run into some issues there. So as far as you know, potential for distress, I would view it that that's where we'd be most likely to see it. Granted, we're of a view that you know, a lot of the signaling that is going on by the Fed right now has already fed into market interest rates. I think that for the first time last week, the 30-year fixed penny interest rate rose to 4.4% for the first time since 2019. If you're looking through the rest of the year, the Fed is signaling that they're going to raise interest rates at each one of their next meetings, likely raising seven or eight, about 200 basis points higher from where we currently are right now. However, if you look at things like the Wall Street Journal Economic Forecasting Survey, you know they're saying that the 10-year is going to end the year around 2.2%. That's as of January, so it's a little bit dated. But even if you look at things like Goldman Sachs last week said, hey, we're going to be a little bit more hawkish. We think that it's going to be raising to 2.7%. It's higher than that 2.2, but that's uh, right around in line of you know, where the federal funds rate is going to be ending. So you know, what that really speaks to is that, at least in our minds, a lot of the impact on those long-term interest rates that are in the market have already started to feed through because the Fed is unable to directly impact that side and uh, market pricing there is dictated by expectations. And yeah. 
So you think the 30 rates may be stabilizing around the four, four and a half percent? Is that what you're speculating? Potentially, I think that more so that we're going to see the movements based on the, the Fed signaling future interest rates rather than the interest rate moves themselves. So the fact that they have signaled that they are going to raise by as much as 200 basis points this year, seven times, you know, once the market knows that, you're going to see that feed through to market pricing almost immediately. Well, Jonathan, very informative time today. And viewers and listeners, thank you so much for being with us. And thank you, Jonathan, for sharing your knowledge and wisdom with us today. Thank you, Alan. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to Real Estate Investing Abundance, brought to you by Steve Talker Capital, a company working for passionate professionals like you to develop financial independence built on solid, passive real estate investments. As part of our efforts to make the world a better place, Steve Talker Capital contributes to activities and organizations committed to better understand the equine. These endeavors attempt to enhance the human treatment of horses worldwide. Steve Talker Capital, working for a world where all creatures, great and small, flourish abundantly. For resources to develop your financial independence, connect with us at stevetalker.com.